Well, God reveals who he is in his word, the Bible. So let's read some of that now. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting from verse 1. I believe it will come up behind me, so you can check if I make some mistakes while I'm reading. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralysed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Good morning, everyone. It is a great privilege to have God's word and that he has spoken to us. And so, as you all know, I think we like to spend time reading and then thinking through and unpacking or expounding what is in there. And so we're going back to a series that was started last year. And it's a series in Matthew's gospel. And we're doing it in particular chunks. And we're picking up that series again now in 2023. I want to ask the question, as we get our thoughts together, the question, what is narcissism? Listen to these quotes from famous people who are on the world stage, and I'm not going to tell you who they are, 
You might be able to work it out, but several quotes from people on the world stage. Here's one. I'm going down as a legend, <clears throat> whether you like, uh, whether or not you like me. I am the new Jim Morrison. I am the new Kurt Cobain. The Bible had 20, 30, 40, 50 characters in it. You don't think that I would be one of the characters of today's modern Bible? That coming from a uh, famous musician. And then this one. I consider myself too perfect and have no faults. <laughs> and the last one I want to give to you is this. I am the number one human being in music. That means any person that's living or breathing is number two. <laughs> now, how would you feel if these people were in your world? If you related to these people because they're in your family or they are friends or maybe they are work colleagues... I have to say, if it were me, I would be very uncomfortable around people like that. It's very cringy, that kind of talk. And that is narcissism. Here are some official signs that someone is indeed a narcissist. And this comes from a medical website. They, they make achievements and talents seem bigger than they are. They are critical of and look down on people they feel are not important. They expect other people to do what they want without questioning them. Don't you dare question me. I'm telling you to do this. They react with rage or contempt and try to belittle other people to make themselves appear superior. Narcissism. Essentially, narcissists have inflated opinions of themselves. They think they are superior to others. Now, last year, when we left off our series in, this, uh, in Matthew, we ended at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So five, chapters 5, 6, 7, Jesus gives this sermon. And at the end of the sermon, this is how he ends. This is how he closes. Just flick back in your Bible so you can see it. It's Matthew 7. 24 to 28. I'm going to read to you how Jesus ended this sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So what we have there, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, the end of it, is superior talk. Jesus is essentially saying, my words must shape your life. Those who do my words are wise people. 
Those who do not do my words are foolish men. This could be the stuff of a narcissist. Or it could be the stuff of one who truly does have authority. Well, Matthew thinks that Jesus does have authority. Matthew thinks that Jesus is the ultimate authority. And in fact, this theme of Jesus' authority runs all the way through his gospel. It's like a thread running all the way through. It's like a melodic line in, in a symphony that keeps coming up. It holds the whole thing together. And so we find this running all the way through this gospel. In chapter 1, for instance, he starts out explaining that Jesus is the promised forever king that was promised to come from the line of Abraham, from the line of King David. And you can find it goes on all the way through, through the gospel of Matthew. And then at the end of Matthew, we have these famous words. We call them the Great Commission. They are Jesus' words, his Great Commission. Let me read it to you. And I want you to note how it is all about authority. Maybe you want to flick over, if, you, if you've got Matthew open in your Bible, to Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew. Listen to these words. Follow them if you've got your Bible. And notice how it's all about authority. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Can you think of any other possible spot in all that exists that isn't covered in that statement? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus thinks that he has authority over all the nations. This is not about a religion that belongs to a particular group in this world. And they're to go baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe means they're to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so there you see that Jesus is the great authority. That's what Matthew thinks, that authority, his, his rule is running through the whole of, of Matthew's gospel. And with that in mind, let's come to our passage and see what it tells us about Jesus, the one with ultimate authority. So we first look at the leper. Here's a man with a big problem. Yes, he's physically unwell. And it's not just a skin problem that he has got. Leprosy was very serious because it would also destroy nerves. And so lepers couldn't feel and they, they might lose tips of fingers and toes because they couldn't feel heat or they couldn't feel a knife. And so it's a very serious problem. But more than that, this poor leper has a spiritual problem because lepers had to be separated away out from the people of God and cut off from temple worship. The people would come to the temple so that they could be forgiven, bring their sins to God and be forgiven. But lepers are cut off. And so his physical condition is a picture of being spiritually unclean and not able to be with God. In the New Testament, Jesus makes it very clear that essentially we are not unclean because of what's happening on our outside. 
So it's a picture in the case of this leper. But where is uncleanness really? Jesus says uncleanness is sin by what comes out of us. And so we have this in Mark 7, 20 to 23, as Jesus talks. He says, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and Jesus says they defile a person. Well, you may be very clean on the outside. You may be very fit and healthy. You may be immaculately groomed. You may be someone that's fitting for the cover of men's health or women's health. But Jesus says you're unclean if these kinds of things come out of you come from your heart. And when we read a list like that, we see ourselves in there. And so we realize that all human beings have a problem. We are spiritually unclean in our natural state. We have a problem. All unworthy of being with the Lord. All unworthy of being with his people. All unworthy of being in his kingdom. All unworthy of eternity. And yet we see Jesus can make people clean. And the leper knows this. He has faith. Notice his faith in Jesus' power to make him clean. He says in verse 2, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It's not, a, it's not really a question. It's a statement. You can make me clean. And so if you will uh, to do so, I can be clean. This is faith. This is trusting Jesus to sort out his problem. And what Jesus does next with this man is outrageous. Do you you notice what it is? Have a look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. He touched the unclean man. Well, right there and then, according to the law, according to Leviticus chapter 5, you touch what is unclean, you become unclean. But in this case, it's not like that. His touch does not make Jesus unclean. It makes the leper clean. Look at the rest of verse 3. It says, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. Not Recovery over a few days or weeks. But instantly, on being touched, this man is well. And what you see there is Jesus' power, Jesus' authority clearly on display. And then the man is told to go and get officially declared clean by the priest. His banishment is over. He is restored to the people. He is restored to the temple. Jesus has the authority to make people clean. That's the first thing in our passage. The second thing I want us to see is what goes on with the centurion. Another picture of power. The centurion has a servant at home who is suffering terribly. He's paralyzed. 
And Jesus heals this man remotely. He doesn't even have to go to him. He doesn't even have to touch him. He doesn't even have to put some ointment on him. He just heals him remotely. At the end of their conversation in the street, Jesus says, this is in verse 13, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. That very moment just by Jesus saying so. And so once again, a display of Jesus' great authority. But we need to notice also the attitude of the centurion. Because the centurion shows us how to respond to this Jesus, this one with authority. Think about this. Who is this man, this centurion? Well, he is the leader of a section of the Roman army. The greatest army of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Who is Jesus from the perspective of most Romans? Well, he's a Jew. He's a member of a conquered people. And even among the Jews, he is a lowly Jew. He's not a prestigious Jew. He's not one of the elites. Later on in chapter 8, near the end, Jesus says that he doesn't even have a home where he can lay his head. He's homeless. So why does the centurion humble himself so much when he talks to Jesus? Notice that in verse 6, he calls Jesus Lord. That word is never used in the Gospels except when believers talk. Unbelievers never talk like that. So why does this man, who in the order of the world back then, was a man of much higher station than Jesus, why does he call him Lord? Because he regards Jesus as an authority above this world. In verse 7, Jesus says he will come to the house and heal the servant. But in verse 8, the centurion says... No, no, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. What a thing to say. Jesus has no prestige in the world as such, but the centurion does. He has servants and soldiers under his command, and yet he feels unworthy to have this homeless man come under his roof. You know, it's usually hard to welcome the fancy people of society into our homes. For many people, having those who've got great power and great wealth come to our homes makes us feel lowly, makes us feel different as they come and see the lower things that we've got compared to what they've got. Well, here we have this man of prestige in the world recognize that Jesus is not some lowly poor man on the low rungs of Jewish society. No, this centurion realizes that he is dealing with the Lord of heaven. And you can see this in how he acknowledges Jesus' authority. In verse 9, he says that he knows how authority works. He says, look, I'm a man under authority, so I have to answer to commands. And then he also says that he has other people under his authority. Second part of verse 9, he says this. 
He says, I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, he's saying to Jesus, I know that you have the authority to command. You don't actually need to come to my house. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. So if people are healed simply at the word of Jesus, at Jesus say so, then that word must be a power that is from out of this world. And these words from the centurion, believing that Jesus can do this, show that he believes that he is dealing with an authority that is divine. And so what is his attitude towards Jesus? It is one of faith. And notice that his faith believes two key things about Jesus. The first key thing is he believes that Jesus is savior. Jesus can save his servant from his paralysis. Jesus can fix that problem. The second thing is, he believes that Jesus is the divine Lord because there's so much about Jesus having authority. He commands, says the centurion, and he gets supernatural results. So therefore, he believes Jesus is the divine Lord. What is your attitude to Jesus? What is yours? It's a very important thing to consider because as we keep going on with the story, we find that there's a consequence if your attitude is wrong. Look at how Jesus responds to this man's humble faith. How you respond to Jesus determines your eternal destiny. So let's pick it up in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. And you know you would have expected to have found such faith because the people of Israel are supposed to be the people of God. They're supposed to have the scriptures. They're supposed to know the prophecies and so on. Jesus goes on, I tell you, many will come from east and west. In other words, foreigners will come and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's a picture of eternity. In the end of the new world, when uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the faith, are there in heaven with the Lord and with all his people. Many foreigners are going to be there. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, the ones who are born into all of this, those of Israel, they will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So many of the Jews around Jesus thought that they were worthy of the eternal kingdom of God because they were born into it. Their ethnicity made them right for that. Jesus says no. Look at the centurion. Look at his faith. Then I want to have a look at the next bit, Peter's mother-in-law and the many. The next story, they're at Peter's house. Mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Once again, Jesus heals immediately. What do you notice in the text, in the story as it's told, that shows you that the healing is immediate? Unlike the leper, Matthew doesn't actually say it was immediate. Look at verse 15. Jesus 
touched her and the fever left her. And then she rose and began to serve him. Usually when a fever breaks, people are still a bit washed out. They need a few days to get their strength back to its full state. But this woman is able to immediately function normally. Again, you see Jesus' power. You see his authority. And then Matthew goes on to tell us about how many were healed of demons and diseases when he was in the the town. How did Jesus cast out those evil spirits? Have a look at verse 16. It says he cast out the spirits with a word. The word. Again and again, we see the authority of Jesus. He is Lord. So now I want to ask this question. Why is he doing all this? Why is he doing all this healing? Because you see, Jesus is the Savior. In verse 17, Matthew says, all of this was to fulfill what Isaiah said in the prophecy found in Isaiah 53, where it says, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, if you go and look at that part of Isaiah closely, you will see a profound prophecy. This was this prophecy was given from God to Isaiah 700 years before about a figure of power, a figure of authority who would nevertheless suffer and through that suffering remove the curse of sickness and death that is upon the sinful world. And so we're being told all this about Jesus here in Matthew because he wants you to see that Jesus is that one of the prophecy. He is saviour. He's the one who makes people clean. He's saviour, but he's also Lord. Now, I know that most of you believe that Jesus is saviour. You believe that he gave himself over to death on the cross to pay for sin. You believe that. And you are looking to him in faith for salvation from judgment. But I need to ask you, do you like the centurion, revere him as Lord. It can be tough to follow this one, this Jesus, because we live in a world that demeans him. So many in our world think the things that Jesus has taught are bad things. Even the religious top dogs of the day when Jesus was around, saw him as nothing. And some saw him as evil. We can say we put our faith in him, but will that seen, will that be seen to be true when the world despises you because it despises him? A scribe came up to Jesus in verse 19 and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Will he? Will he really? Jesus replied, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is not at home in this world. This evil world doesn't want him. Make no mistake. This is his world and he will finally assert his rule over it. But until he does, 
He is despised and rejected, and those who are with him also. It might become very hard in our changing world to follow Jesus. But if you say that you are following him, that he's your savior and your Lord, then you were with him and not with this world. And it's getting harder. The Anglican bishops in the United Kingdom, they don't regard Jesus as Lord. They regard the new social ideas of our world as Lord. And in the news just last week, their latest thing is to move to change the pronouns of God from uh, he, him to they, them. These are not people who follow Jesus as Lord. They are following the world. Are you going to follow the world? Is he Lord? And then we say we trust Jesus as Savior, but do we trust him as Lord when it comes to our priorities? Is Jesus first in your life? Look at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, that sounds a little hard. Is he saying, don't go to your father's funeral? It isn't that. The Lord clearly teaches to honor mother and father. It's an idiom. It is an idiom from the time for while your father is still alive and well, you think I need to focus on everything to do with my father and his business and his affairs. And only when he eventually dies, then when that time comes, I will be free to follow you. So the idiom was bury your father means you are with your father as priority in everything that you do in life until he has died. And it's likely that this person coming to Jesus had a concern about inheritance. Because if I don't make everything about family first until dad's gone, then I may not get an inheritance. The question Jesus is putting to this man in this way is, me, I'm Lord, you need to follow me. I've known young people struggling over putting Jesus first. They, they want to live for Christ. They want to live sacrificially. They, they, they want to go to Bible college. Perhaps they want to enter the mission field and then their family object. They don't want them to do that. I experienced that in a little way, in a nice way, when my grandfather was concerned that I wanted to go in this direction. He was very worried about security financially for me. And there was a benign uh, pressure, but he didn't hold that on me. And then when I got into ministry, he was very much arm around my shoulder and an encouragement. But it, it can come from really good motives, but the, the children don't go that way because the parents object. Sometimes the parents want the children to have prestigious careers. But Jesus is Lord. That's the key thing. Jesus is Lord, not dad, not mum. Our priority might be money. We choose the careers we want because we want to make a lot of money. But we've got these clear gospel gifts. We are so gifted for leading and proclaiming and putting the gospel out there. And it's been noted and others have told us we, we don't want to do it because we want to make money. And it's not wrong to go into, a, into the, a career in the world for all kinds of reasons. But if it's money that we're after and put Jesus aside, 
then Jesus is saying, let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying, prioritize him. He's Lord. We say Jesus is Lord, but we don't care to obey his clear word in the scriptures. We don't care about abusing alcohol. And it's always a joke and a laugh at the next function and the next function. Making jokes about who's the designated driver among Christians. Oh, it's good that you don't drive. But should you even be in that state if you're a Christian? We don't care to put gossip to death. We don't care to put slander to death. We don't care to go out of our way to love other people and to seek peace where it's broken. It then seems that we just want Jesus to be Savior. But he's Savior and he's Lord. Jesus is Savior. He's taken our illnesses. He's borne our diseases. All the troubles that have come into this world because of sin are sorted out by Jesus, by what he's done on the cross. And there will be no more. Yes, he is Savior. But he is also Lord. And if you are a Christian, you have put your faith in him as one with authority, as Savior and Lord. And so I close with this question. Is it evidence in your life, imperfect as you are, is it nevertheless evident in your life and my life that you are seeking to live with him as your Lord? Let's pray. Jesus, you are wonderful so full of compassion as we see in that story, so caring, touching the unclean and making it that a paralyzed man is well, a picture of your making us clean and well, forgiven, cleansed right before God. Thank you for what you have done as we see in Isaiah 53 coming into this world so that we can be washed clean, forgiven, that you've come as Savior. But also we see your authority. We are saved from having rebelled against you. And so, of course, it's appropriate that if you're Savior, you're also Lord, that we repent and receive your salvation, and we continue in life seeking to obey you as our Lord. Please help us to be very sensitive to our failing. We acknowledge that we do fail. And thank you that we can come to you as we do each week and confess sin. And pray that we would be sensitive to sin and indeed confess it when we see it. May we be a changing people more and more, more and more like Christ as we come more and more under your Lordship. We ask these things in Jesus' precious, most wonderful name. Amen.